I don't know where you are in your life and what's going on. Uh, this morning uh, uh, reminded me a little bit of high school debate. I say this morning, this week did. Our daughter was debating this week. That, by the way, is out of my yearbook, my junior year of high school. I'm the guy leaning, sitting with his back to the tree, 1977. That was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. But one of our daughters is debating, and she was at a debate tournament this weekend. And over the week, I had had time to help her get started. And it reminded me so much of what life was like as a high school debater. One of the things you do as a high school debater is you keep what are called extemp tubs. Because while you're a high school debater who debates at these tournaments, the coach always makes you enter this dreaded event called extemporaneous speaking. Let me tell you what extemporaneous speaking is. You are put into a group of six, seven, or eight students who go every seven minutes and draw three topics out of a hat. These are topics that are relevant to current events. And you look at the three topics and you have to make a decision which of the three you will speak on. You have 30 minutes to prepare a speech and get to the room where you then have to give the seven-minute speech. Needs to have a good introduction, good conclusion, needs to have three points. And within those three points needs to have some documentation or evidence or some quoted reference to some authoritative source. And then the judge, or judge is, will rank you. And those that are ranked among the top one or two, move on to the next round. Those that aren't, get to quit. I see Doug Tosh, his daughter competed in that this weekend, and I understand was in the final round, made it all the way to finals. And um, uh, it's, it's, it's a chore. It's fun. But to do that, you can't just walk in and just draw a topic now, you might get one that says, discuss the call, um, um, what the U.S. policy should be toward the conflict in Syria. That'd be a typical topic. Now, you may have some memorized quotations in the top of your brain on that, but most of us would need some sources. You're not allowed to take a computer in there. You're not allowed to access the Internet. You're not allowed to talk to anybody. You're not allowed to use a cell phone. You're not allowed to ask anybody anything. You're in a lockdown with you and your extemp tubs, for lack of a better word. And these are big old tubs where you have assiduously cut out articles from reputable news sources and filed them away so that you've got articles not just on the fiscal cliff but you've got articles on every remote subject you might draw a topic on in current events. When I was in high school one of the principal places we went week by week to stock the extemp tubs were certain news magazines. We used U.S. News and World Report. We used Time. We used News Week, which was supposed to have the week's worth of news. And these are actual copies of magazines that were contemporaneous with me. I went back that far. We don't have Newsweek as a printed copy anymore. In fact, Newsweek ended its printed copy at the end of last year. I know this in part because I've paid attention to the news, but I also know it because my older sister, Catherine, brought Newsweek to one of our Christmas functions. And she said, have you seen the new issue of Newsweek? 
Who was Jesus? By Bart Ehrman. He's the cover author on Who Was Jesus? Well, with all due respect, a news magazine that's reporting the news ought to do one of two things. They ought to either report all meaningful aspects and sides of the news or go ahead and admit we're only giving you one perspective. Newsweek didn't do that. This wasn't news. This wasn't news at all. This was, I started to say religious propaganda, but it's actually anti-religious propaganda. This was not Bart Ehrman discussing the different ways different people see different sides of this view. This was Bart Ehrman writing his perspective. And I'll give him deference for being an academic scholar who presented his academic scholarly perspective but he presented it as he usually does as if it is the gospel truth with no gospel I mean it's it's as if it's the only way to see things and Bart Ehrman fails to present both sides of an issue to describe a penny only as the head of Lincoln is to fail to present both sides of the issue It's to fail to give it substance. Those are not the kind of articles you want in your extemp tub. His article is not adequate even for a high school speech student. Because what you need to do is read the Bible without blinders on. You don't want to read the Bible blind to the truth. If there's anything that's worth looking at and studying in depth, it is the Bible. Because if the Bible is in fact the Word of God, heaven forbid we not study it. And if it is not the Word of God, heaven forbid we be tricked by it. So we need to study without blinders on. Because if we read the Bible, or we fail to read the Bible, or we study it blind to the truth, not only are we a danger to ourselves, but we're a danger to others as well. And I think this is found not only in certain circles of academia. If you go onto Bart Ehrman's website, he says, Oh, my Newsweek article got all sorts of haranguing emails to me. Hundreds and hundreds of emails to Newsweek or comments. And he, he was excited over that. And he said, but what most of you don't realize is every single academic on the continent from every university would see it the same way I do. That's not true. What's true is, if you don't see it the way he does, he does not deem you to be an academic. So, with all due respect to him, while he does have a a, a legitimate academic view, he's got only one view. There are people in the church who are guilty of reading the Bible with blinders on. Who say, I don't care what the truth is, I'm just going to believe it this way. But there are also people in academia and other places who are equally guilty of reading it 
from their own perspective without any faith. And if truth says something otherwise, they won't change their mind anyway because their mind is made up. What I'm saying here is the dangers to reading the Bible blind to the truth flow both ways. Some will read the Bible intellectually, but they'll study it with no faith at all. These are the Bart Ehrmans, who readily admits he does not study the Bible with faith. He is an unbeliever. There are some in the church even who read the Bible with faith, but they don't study it with their mind. They're not open to trying to understand it beyond what they have been taught. And if we ever are going to read the Bible with faith, now at least they've got faith. And God works salvation wonders through faith. But to read the Bible with faith but no mind is the functional equivalent of the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz before he meets the wizard. If I only had a brain. We've got them. God gave them to us for a reason. So what we do here in this class, if you're new this year, what we do in this class is we try hard to study with faith and with our mind. And that's our biblical literacy goal. To study with faith and with the mind. The mind's important because what we're about here is truth. We're not about something that feels good. We're not about networking so that we can get more business. We're not about just something to do on Sunday morning when the football game was played on Saturday. We're actually about trying to live our lives in a conviction that there is a a God beyond us and beyond our world who is interested enough in us to reach down and communicate to us and bring us into his presence eternally. So what our goal is here is to study with faith and to study with the mind. We take seriously those scriptures like John 14, 6 where Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. Truth means something to the believer. It's not just there. We can look at John 18, 7, uh, 37, I think. Jesus says, this is the purpose for which I was born. This is the purpose for which I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I'm bearing witness. This is the reason I was born. Truth is important. Paul tells the Romans in a passage that Pastor Fleming, it sounds like, will get to in about a year. Paul, (laughs) unless he just stretches it into one sermon. Uh, Paul says, I say that with love and affection. You all know he is my favorite pastor. He'll get to this one day. And when he does, you think, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Um, They exchanged the truth. Paul's talking here about pagans who exchanged the truth about God for a lie, who chose to worship what God's created rather than the creator God. We care about truth. We don't want to be that. We want to understand, Paul says in Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. The truth is important to us. Colossians 1, 5 and 6. Of this you've heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It's bearing fruit, it's increasing, 
as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understood, understood the grace of God in truth. The mind's an important part of what we're about. Paul told Timothy, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is about teaching truth. He's about telling the truth. And he contrasts that later in Timothy to those who have an unhealthy craving for controversy. For quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. See how Paul puts those together. Depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. We are to be about pursuing with our minds the truth that is Jesus, that is God, that is reality. Francis Schaeffer calls it the true truth, to really put emphasis on it. And that's what we're about. So we want to do this, and it's nice that we're doing it because the principal reason, at least a principal reason, we have the Gospel of Luke is a desire to make sure that people's faith is something that is accurate and truthful. That we are believing in things that really happened. Our faith is not simply a blind allegiance to something that we've been taught. It is an intellect, it is also an intellectual response. To what we understand to be true. And I think that's important. So as we look at Luke in an introductory fashion this week. This is what I want to do. I want to ask three questions with you. I want to ask the question, who wrote Luke and Acts? And you're saying, well, why'd you throw Acts up there? Same guy. Um, today, if you want to write something, you get a bunch of paper and you get a pen and you start writing. And when you fill up one sheet, what do you do? Get an, turn it over, Miss Carolyn, or get another sheet. Or let's say you're typing on a computer. You can type until your battery runs down, until it crashes if it's not an apple, until... Uh, until... Your fingers are just worn down and you're hitting it with your hands. But that was not the way it was in the time of Luke. You got to go buy a scroll. You go buy a scroll. What size would you like, Miss Carolyn? A big one, she said. Well, they come up to 25 feet. Would you like a 25 footer? Sure. The reason they don't get any bigger is they're too bulky and hard to handle. I mean, you don't just like turn the page. You got to roll this end and unroll that end. And, and the bigger they are, the bigger they are, and the bigger they are. And about 25 feet's it. I'm not saying for special occasions they couldn't make one bigger, but they sure weren't generally available. So Luke is about to write, and he gets the jumbo scroll. He gets the Texas-sized scroll, the 25-footer. And he fills it up with Luke. But he's not through writing. 
So he goes and he gets another 25-footer, and that's our book of Acts. And the reason Luke and Acts are in two books is because that's how many it takes to fit the scrolls. You can't get past... You, Luke fills up an entire scroll, the jumbo size. So what Luke did is he's written in two parts. And you look at the end of Acts, and we'll talk about when he wrote it and why it ends the way it does when we get to the book of Acts. But when we're asking who wrote it, it's important we look at it as a whole. Who wrote Luke and Acts? Because they're both written by the same individual, dedicated or inscribed or at least to the point of being given to the same individual, a fellow named Theophilus. His name means friend of God. And so this is being done by Luke. Who wrote Luke Acts is the question. How was it written? To me is one of the most important questions. And we cannot answer how it was written until we get past who wrote it. Not fully at least. So let's deal with who wrote it. Then how was it written? And then finally, why was it written? And then we'll go to lunch. All right. Let's start with who wrote Luke Acts. Scoot it over. I've got a simple one word answer. You want to hear it? Luke. Luke. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Let me tell you why I believe that to be true. And I will also, in fairness, tell you that there are people in the academy, including Bart Ehrman, who would disagree with me. I don't have time in this oral presentation to tell you why and to respond to their arguments. In your written lesson, I've told you why at least three of the principal reasons, and I've responded in that. And obviously, this is worthy of books and books and books. You have a 16, 17-page lesson. So you have an abbreviated response, but it certainly sets you on the right path. So, let's look at the biblical evidence of why people think Luke wrote Luke. First of all, there are a set of passages in Acts that scholars call the we passages. And they're called the we passages because Luke changes from a third person writing style to a first person plural writing style. Now, some of you are English students. I've seen some. Look. You had to be in English sometime more recent than George. When was the last time you took an English class? Taking it right now. And what grade are you in? Twelfth grade. Senior English student on the front row. He'll never do that again. <laughs> Let's go to the Elmo. If I'm going to write in third person, I'm going to say, hey... He came to class. Let's see. We can do this a little bit better. Automatic focus, automatic color. And maybe turn a little light on it. New room. Got to learn this. He came to class. He sat on the front row. He talked out loud. He will likely never do it again. Or, and that would be, third person, right? 
You remembering this from English, those of you who have been gone a while? Okay. First person. If it's singular, first person means I. But if it's plural, first person is we. We came to class today. We ate donuts. We did not sit on the front row. And we might come back. We. He is something that happens apart from me. He did those things whether you're here or not. But we means all of us. Well, Luke writes Luke all in third person. Here's what happened to Zacharias. Here's what happened to Elizabeth. And she gave birth to John the Baptist. And this is what happened to Mary. And this is how it happened with Joseph. And blah, 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 blah. Gets into Acts, same thing. All the apostles were gathered together. And the Spirit came down and Peter stood up. And it was like tongues of fire. And everybody heard in their own language as he proclaimed. And blah, 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 blah. It's all he, they, it. Third person. Until you reach Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul is on a missionary journey. He's got Timothy and Silas with him. And you can see some of this third person stuff going on here. He says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had they come up to Mycenae. They attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. You see, it's all first per, or third person. They, 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 they. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night while he's in Troas, modern Istanbul, pretty close, pretty close, Constantinople. Um, A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately, look, we sought to go on to Macedonia. It's the first time from Luke 1 all the way up into Acts 16 where finally whoever is writing this has just become a part of the company. And so we have we sought to go on, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage the following day from there to Philippi. And we remained in the city. And this goes on and on. And whoever is writing stays in Philippi, it looks like. Because the writing then shifts back to, so then Paul and they, they went on. Here's what Paul did next. Here's what Paul did next. Here's what they did next. And you don't get another we passage until you get to Acts chapter 20. But once you get to Acts chapter 20, Paul sends for the disciples. Paul says farewell. Paul goes through those regions. Paul spends three months in a plot by the Jews' put out. So he sets sail for Syria. But right before he does, he decides instead to return through Macedonia. That's where Philippi is. Uh, So Potter of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him. The Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, the Asians, Tychicus, Trophimus, 
these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed away from Philippi. So the we starts back up. The author of Luke Acts joined Paul, went as far as Philippi, rejoins Paul at Philippi, and even though you'll read a lot of third person because it'll say this happened to Paul, it's, it's never divorced from Luke's inclusion in it. All the way, or the author's inclusion, I should say, all the way up, even through chapter 27. So as we're getting near the end of Acts, we see the writer stays with Paul all the way till Paul gets to Rome and is imprisoned in Rome. It was decided we should sail for Italy. So the captors delivered Paul and other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, next day Sidon. Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go to his friends. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. See, it's the we, 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 and it just continues. So what scholars are able to do is they're able to then go to letters that Paul wrote from his Roman imprisonment. His letter to the church at Colossae, where he sends greetings from his beloved physician, Luke. The letter that he wrote from, uh, to Philemon, where he sends greetings from Luke. In these letters, you can read the other people who are with Paul, but it's pretty clear that Luke is one of them. And that Luke has a special relationship with Paul and with others. So from these we passages, it's very consistent that this would be Luke. Beyond that, when we add it to Paul's writings, we especially see that that is true. Let's take it another step. By the way, oh, I, oh PowerPoint, thank you. Can we go back to PowerPoint? Thank you, Steve. So we've got those we passages. We've also got Paul's writings that put together with the we passages give a good consistent, sensible read. By the way, if you're Paul and you're getting beaten up all the time, you're getting snake bit, shipwrecked, beset upon by robbers, flogged, hasn't God really taken care of you if he's given you like a full-time doctor to go with you the whole time? There's just something really providing about God there. So anyway... In addition to the biblical evidence, we've got the historical evidence. To find someone arguing Luke was written by someone other than Luke, you've got to step past the first century, the second century, the third century, the fourth century, the fifth century, the sixth century. You really have to get to the 19th century to find anyone seriously attacking Luke as the author of Luke Acts. If you want to just look at what evidence there is and we throw it up there on a whiteboard, all of our most ancient Greek manuscripts we've got that do have a title affixed to them have in the title that this is the Evangelion, this is the, the euangelon, this is the gospel 
according, or kata, are handed down from Luke. It's in the titles. Now, that doesn't mean Luke put it there. The odds are what generally would happen is if you wrote a scroll, in your Bibles it's translated books, and please understand the church is principally responsible, most likely, for the predominance of books. Because we wanted to put these Gospels together that won't fit on more than, or won't fit on one scroll. We wanted the dexterity of being able to look from one to another. And so secular uh, academicians and scholars readily credit the church with moving civilization past scrolls into the popularity of books. Be that as it may. In your Bible, when it says books, it's talking about a scroll. So, you've got a scroll, and what generally would happen is the scrolls would not have this written at the top of of the original writing, but it would be written on another page and affixed to it, or accompany it. And then subsequent copies put it on top. So we don't think that the original title was on Luke's original writing. But it would quickly have been affixed. And it's as ancient as anything we've got. We do not have any other title assigned to the Gospel of Luke other than the Gospel of Luke. And it goes so far back, we can't determine when the church assigned it. That's huge. And that's a huge thing. Add to that, Markian the heretic. Now this is really cool. Here's this guy that nearly ripped the church asunder in the mid-100s in Rome. He was a horrible heretic. He took some of Paul's writings and he butchered up and selected out of the Gospel of Luke. He dismissed Matthew, Mark, and John because they didn't help him. And he developed this Gnostic theology that truly attacked the church. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, what a horrible thing. Well, yes and no. It was horrible, but as a result of this heretic doing all of this, a bunch of people wrote against the heretic. And from the writings against the heresies, Irenaeus, for example, from the writings against the heresies, We have them talking about, yeah, Markian, he just takes the gospel of Luke. We have evidence that the early church, without exception, recognized that Luke was written by Luke. And so you take uh, uh, Irenaeus, who was the bishop at Lyon, France, and, and Irenaeus writes, and he tells us about Luke, the physician, who wrote the gospel, and when he wrote it, and why he wrote it. You can march up to the first major church historian, Eusebius, who wrote in the first half of the 300s, the 4th century, and he goes into great detail. There is a prologue that was attached to the Gospels, and scholars debate over whether it was written in the 150 era to 175 era or the 400 era. But most of them agree that the Luke prologue was written at the time of this heretic or shortly thereafter. And it sets out Luke as the author and gives us some biographical data about him. I put it in your lesson plan. i got to keep moving on. Suffice it to say, we have good evidence that Luke was written by Luke. Now, here's the next point, and this is why it's important. So if you slept through all of that, it doesn't matter. Wake up now. You still get class, okay? You still get it. 
You just, if you question whether or not Luke wrote Luke, go back and read the paper. If you're okay with that, wake up. Here's the deal. Why it matters is how was it written? Luke tells us in Luke 1, 1 through 4, it was written with meticulous research from eyewitness accounts. Let's look at Luke 1 together briefly, if we could go to the Elmo. We'll do this fast, but you've got to catch a couple of these things because this is the point. Here's the way Luke starts. Luke says, inasmuch... There's part of me that just wants us to take a lot of time with this. That's a phenomenal Greek word. This guy transposes between Greek and, and Hebrew Greek. And I mean, it's just amazing, the, the, the knowledge... This was not just some fisherman like Matthew, Mark, and John. Not that I'm throwing rocks at them. They were great guys, okay? And they are apostles. But this is a well-educated doctor who's got some really neat ability to write. This is a classical Greek word that starts this off with just a bang. Okay, inasmuch as many have undertaken, and when he says many have undertaken, don't think it means a whole lot. That's a rhetorical device. It just means others have done this. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Have you ever seen the movie My Cousin Vinny? Eyewitnesses. My favorite line from that movie. In the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now Luke uses that word ministers only four times. He uses it in a typical way to refer to prison guards or to the, to the attendant at the synagogue. It literally comes from someone who's rowing underneath the orders of someone else. That's the origination of the word. But it's taken by this time to mean an attendant, a guard, a helper, a minister. But when he's using it of church people, he uses it of two people. John Mark and Paul. John Mark as in Gospel of Mark. Mark and Paul. Those are the two people he calls ministers in his writing. So he got this information from those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They delivered it to him. And he says, it seemed good to me having followed all things closely for some time past. And and in the Greek, that's doubly emphatic. He's saying, I followed it closely, closely. I was really attentive. I was right on top of this stuff. I was meticulously diligent to get it right. I have been tuned into this like like crazy. That's what he's saying. Okay? Now, these are eyewitnesses. Can we go back to the PowerPoint? Scholars say, Well, Luke uh, wrote Luke because he... uh, uh, you know, it was a late edition, and you can't put credibility in it. Uh, you know, he took Mark, and he took uh, some sayings, and, and he put it together with some other stuff, and added the infancy narratives and stuff that you don't find in the other Gospels, so it's not reliable. Heavens, read what happened to Luke. Luke goes with Paul. So he's got Paul as a minister and an eyewitness, and he identifies stories from Paul. And when you read about Paul's Damascus Road experience, where he sees Jesus Christ resurrected, 
and it changes his life in a 180. Luke didn't get that from some oral tradition that had been handed down for a hundred years of Paul Bunyan. This is real. He heard it from Paul. He was with Paul. He was with Paul when Paul went to Jerusalem. Can you imagine getting to go to Jerusalem in the 50s? Not 1950s or 1850s. The 50s, period. Can you imagine being fluent in the language and getting to sit down with the apostles of the church? Can you imagine being to sit down with the family of John the Baptist? Look what happens. Can you imagine sitting down with Mary, the mother of Jesus? Do you think if you had a chance, if you knew you were writing a history, if you knew you were writing something for people to rely on, do you think if you sat down with Mary you might say, hey, tell me about the birth of Jesus and take a few notes? Are you surprised that Luke's got nativity stories that the other gospel writers don't? Are you surprised to find that that Luke's the one who tells us about Zechariah writing the name of John the Baptist on a tablet because he's mute and he can't talk until he does so? And he writes it on the Greek as a little wooden writing tablet. And we've got ones from that era that uh, people have found. So don't you know he saw it? You don't have that prophetic moment where you've got your voice, where you've written down the name of your son who you understand is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. You think you do that and then use it for kindling to start the fire? These are the things that Luke had at his disposal. These are the things that's only reasonable. Luke's the only one who tells us about Zacchaeus and the tree. Go read Richard Baucom's book, Eyewitnesses in the Gospels. And he makes a compelling argument that the Gospel writers single out names of people because those are references that folks can go to to check on the story. Don't you know Zacchaeus would have loved for you to say, let me tell you about Jesus. There I was. I couldn't see over there. All these people, man, I'm short. I had to climb a tree. And Jesus is walking by and says, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. For I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. I, don't you know? People struggle. Oh, what happened at the empty tomb? Matthew talks about some people. Mark, uh, uh, Luke uses different people. Luke's got these three women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. How many women were there and who were they and who got it right and who got it wrong? Luke's not listing those because he he thinks, uh, uh, hey, Matthew got it wrong, let me fix him. Luke is writing down from his sources the people he talked to that are witnesses that anybody could go check from. There may have been another woman or two that Matthew didn't pick up because Matthew had his sources that he wanted his people to go check on. 
but you put all the gospel stories together and you get a fuller picture of what you've got. You get both sides of the coin. You get Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. You get it all. Because that's what it is. Meticulously researched and he names these people and says, you go ask them about it. They were there. They're still alive. That's why he puts the names in there. So, why was it written? We talked about who wrote it. We talked about how he wrote it. Now, why was it written? Luke says it. Luke says he's writing this to give certainty. Certainty you can investigate. Certainty you can verify. I'm not withholding names. I'm giving you the names. You go talk to them. It's the same approach that Luke's mission mentor, Paul, used. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He didn't simply say, hey, it happened. Believe it or not, it happened. He said, not only did it happen... He appeared to Peter, he appeared here, he appeared here, he appeared here, he appeared here. Last, like some untimely afterbirth, he appeared to me. He's appeared to 400 people. Many of them are still alive. Go ask them. That's the same thing that Luke is doing. He's naming names. Because this is being written for certainty that can be investigated. And that can be verified. So where does this land us? The thoughtful Christian cares about faith and truth. And I'm writing that down and I thought, "Uh (gasps) uh-oh. I better add love. Because you can have all the faith in the world. And you can have all the knowledge in the world. And truth and understanding. But if you don't have love, you get trumped. By Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 because love's most important. And frankly, I tell you, you don't have all the faith and understanding in the world if you don't have love because that's the fertile soil that produces love as a crop. But the thoughtful Christian cares about faith and truth and love. And there's a balance here that was missing from Newsweek. So come to church and get the balance. Here are your points for home. Number one. John said, uh, in quoting Jesus, For this purpose, I, Jesus, was born. And for this purpose, Jesus came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now you see, the Gospel of Luke bears witness to Jesus. Jesus himself is bearing witness to the truth. That's the reason he was born. He was born because it was necessary. For God to achieve God's purposes, Jesus had to be born, suffer, die, resurrected into a new birth, new life that we now as humans can share in. That was necessary for God's purpose. And that's the truth. I want to tell you what I really believe. I, I, I think this is, I think Bart Ehrman might agree with me on this point. Truth about Jesus is the single most important issue in human history. If Jesus, in fact, is the incarnate God who came and lived 
and died so that we could spend eternity with God. If God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever might believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. If that happened, if the tomb was empty on Easter morning because God brought Jesus from the dead, If Jesus ascended into heaven with the promised assurance, he would come again. It's the single most important issue in the history of humanity. What are you not going to do with that? Point two. When Jesus was resurrected, he opened their minds, the apostles' minds, to understand the scriptures. I want faith. By faith I stand. By faith I'm saved. But it is my prayer to God to open my mind to understand the Scriptures. I don't want a faith that's denuded of understanding. I want a faith that's standing with its feet firmly planted in the gospel of truth. That's the foundation. Last point. Go back to that Romans passage. There are people who exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is a real important emotional point for me right now. There are people in this world, there are people that we know, there are friends and family who get so enamored with things of this world that they do not walk with the one who made them. I know a young man who is so enamored with logic and the precision and beauty of mathematics that he has lost sight of the consistent logician who made it so. Heaven forbid, literally, heaven forbid that any of us or those we care about, should ever be more wrapped up in what God has made and done than they are in God who made and did it. And so my request to you as a point for home is find that person, parent S, persons, that God has on your heart and let's commit this year to spending this year in regular prayer for them. We're going to pray for them. We're not going to join them. And don't ever, ever, ever get so wrapped up in what is here that we lose sight of what is there. You with me? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for your devotion. Thank you so much for communicating to us. Forgive us for blindly reading Scripture from our framework and from our culture and from the way we would write. Forgive us, Lord, for not reading it, seeking for your word the way you wrote it in the time and place you've delivered it.
before we understand how you would apply it to us. Help us in this class, Lord, to study, to to work hard, to seek to understand not only you and what you've done, but how you have gone about revealing it to us. May your spirit open our minds to understand Scripture. And Lord, those people that we know and love who have no vision of you right now because they're too wrapped up in visions of what you've made, you don't seem real because they're thinking what you made is more real than you who made it. Lord, we pray for those people. I join my heart, not knowing who everyone else is praying for, but I join my heart with them and my knees before you spiritually, saying, God, would you please reach down, soften hearts, touch people. Use us to do that, Lord. Use other people to do it. Use life, use circumstances, all that you can, Lord, to bring home your people to you. In Jesus' name, amen.